take two. So I've got a new podcast episode here. Um, I decided to call it Slavery Slash Secessionist History, Thomas Jefferson Depravity, and Citizens United Tomfoolery. And we're really going to divide the attention between those issues, but hopefully they'll all tie together in the end and you can put a little bow tie on it and dress it up, you know, all fancy like Tucker Carlson and it'll, you know, be presentable as a, as an episode. Um, not that Tucker Carlson is the best example I could have went with, but you know, he's got that tie. He wants to look classy while he's spewing his fascist talking points. And today we're going to be looking at one of those fascist talking points that we've heard so much about nowadays, which is, you know, the whole civil war thing and, you know, secessionism, the neo-confederate talking points or what have you, whatever you want to call it. And I, I do want to remind people out there that the whole secessionist idea or the idea of, you know, creating new divisions in society, that's not necessarily just a right-wing talking point. I know that it often is, but not always. I mean, remember the uh, thing in Seattle that they would call Chaz or Chop? And that was, in a way, sort of like an attempt to create a new society. You know, I I thought it was kind of silly. It, it basically went nowhere. It got a lot of bad press. I don't consider it as nightmarish as the conservatives were claiming it was. But I do think it was a mere distractive exercise and it seemed doomed for failure. And really, that's a lot of my attitude also about, you know, the other types of more broader breaking up of the country that so many people are uh, celebrating as a cause. But there is a basic question here. And uh, you can find this on Quora, asked in many different ways. If the U.S. were to be split into two countries or more countries, where should the lines be drawn? So, you know, that's one of the basic ways to analyze this question, you know, to see how, in fact, if it was to happen, it would happen. The question of where to draw a line of the U.S. or, you know, if the U.S. were to be split into different countries is highly subjective and complex. You know, you could have certain Pacifica states like California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. You know, you could have them as like a new America or something like that. And then you could have a bunch of these southern states, you know, uh, you know, you know, the ones, you know, which ones they would be. And there are numerous factors to consider, though, including cultural, political, economic, and geographical aspects. Additionally, any attempt to divide the country would likely face significant challenges and potential conflicts. Historically, discussions about dividing the U.S. have been revolving around regional differences, such as those between the East Coast and the West Coast, or the North and the South. It's also interesting to look at one of the big issues that generated tensions in the United States historically, and yes, you guessed it, it was slavery. The same thing that plenty of white nationalists and, you know, these uh, separatists could and absolutely would bring back if they had their way. In fact, in a way, they've 
always tried to keep it around in the form of, you know, uh, racist imprisoning of black Americans at a disproportionate rate and allowing for slave labor in private for-profit prisons and through sweatshop labor overseas. You know, it's never, it's never been the case that either outright slavery or approximations thereof have just totally vanished. And, you know, some states right now, as I speak, they're trying to bring back child labor and things like that. You know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders has really become sort of the uh, poster of, well, I guess she's not a child, so I can't say poster child, but, you know, the poster woman for it in her state. But really, we can learn about some of these original slaveholding uh, states and the uh, slave-related dividing lines just by looking at good old social studies material. I don't know if you remember that in school, you know, the social studies where you learned about, you know, how how, how society is functioning. And, uh, you know, if you were homeschooled, maybe you never did learn about social studies. I don't know. Or, you know, the use of child labor or ways in which women's rights were severely limited in the United States, etc., etc. But I know that I learned some of those things. And, you know, let's, let's look at a few of them. Um, one site called socialstudieshelp.com paints the picture in a straightforward way with an entry called Mid-1800s American Sectionalism, Understanding the Divisions. That site notes some of the interesting legislative compromises at the time. So I'm going to I'm going to quote this: To address the rising tensions, several legislative compromises were enacted, aiming to maintain a delicate balance between slave and free states. The Missouri Compromise of 1820 was among the first significant legislative attempts to mitigate sectional conflicts, admitting Missouri as a slave state and Maine as a free state to preserve the Senate's balance. The Compromise of 1850, another crucial piece of legislation, including provisions designed to appease both sides of the sectional divide. It admitted California as a free state, established the territories of Utah and New Mexico with the possibility for residents to decide on slavery, and enacted a stricter fugitive slave law. However, these compromises often provided temporary relief, failing to address the underlying issues fueling sectionalism. And the or the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 further exacerbated tensions by allowing the residents of the Kansas and Nebraska territories to decide whether to permit slavery, effectively repealing the Missouri Compromise. This act led to violent conflicts famously known as Bleeding Kansas, reflecting the deep and irreparable rifts within the nation. Each of these legislative acts highlighted the profound challenges and conflicts brought about by sectionalism. The political landscape was fraught with division and contention, reflecting the disparate visions and interests of the North and South. These differences eventually culminated in the breakdown of national unity and the onset of the Civil War. Well, that sounds familiar, right? That's kind of the same rhetoric we're hearing today, only 
you know, we haven't had outright slavery in this country for quite some time. So what's, what's going on exactly? Uh, some people out there might remember all this stuff if they are engaged in such material as experts or have a memory like a, spe- a steel trap. Some might be like, oh yeah, I did learn that. Others wouldn't remember any of that because it's either stuff they never learned due to lackluster schools, or maybe they just never paid attention to it. And hey, I'm not even trying to judge here too much. I didn't remember all of those details myself until I just looked into it recently. And there's nothing wrong with doing a little refresher course, so long as it's from a source that at least has the hallmarks of being legitimate. You know, uh, if it has sources and whatnot, and those sources themselves, you know, check, check out. However, regional divisions are oversimplifications. And that's really what has is happening right now. You know, it's a deeper, more complex thing than regionalism that is leading to this talk of, you know, secession and all that stuff. There may be a wide range of political beliefs and cultural diversity within each region. So I, I can give an example. I technically live in the blue state of Michigan, yet I live in a somewhat red part of that blue state, yet I may be considered blue, even though I'm not very quick to call myself a Democrat. You know, they would still, there's still some Republicans who would instantly assume that, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat just because I'm, you know, to the left of so-and-so, you know, because I'm not a MAGA hat wearing weirdo. So I, I'm not saying I would not generally align with some elements of the Democratic Party, especially when contrasted with far-right extremism. For example, I would not want some neo-fascist theocratic dictatorship. And uh, really, that's that's what a lot of this divisiveness is about. There are certain powerful interests out there that do want basically a theocratic dictatorship that establishes an oligarchy and serves that oligarchy and their interests. So at the same time, there are definitely some things the Democrats do that I do not agree with, such as how Joe Biden is basically casually letting Israel slaughter Palestinians. So I know some of you out there, you're you're for that. I'm not. You know, that's just one issue we would basically disagree with, or on, I should say. And yes, I'm finally going to mention that issue a bit more here on this podcast. And no, that process did not actually start with the Hamas attack, even though plenty in the media like to pick that as a convenient historical cutoff point. You know, the the fact of the matter is Israel was killing Palestinians before that attack. It's just a matter of fact. It's not my opinion. And then, of course, people might lie about me and say, oh, Wade is just being pro-Hamas or pro-Palestinian or pro-this or pro-that. So I'm I'm really not pro any of that exactly. I'm really only pro-shutting the fuck up and letting people live their lives, which is a bit tricky to do when one group or another is killing innocent civilians, you know, whether it's Israel or Hamas, destroying their infrastructure and slaughtering them by the thousands or tens of thousands or any other number. And hell, I'd, 
I dare to say that even killing one person should probably be frowned upon, even if by preventable accident, you know, that's, that's the way I roll. So, um, I'm just going over those details to remind you that there are differences between me and Joe Biden. I'm not a mouthpiece for Joe Biden or the Democrats, but there, there's still some people who would consider me as like, um, you know, somebody who's loyal to them, no matter, no matter what I argue otherwise, just because I'm not a huge Trump person. The point here is issues and conflicts are basically never purely regional. Even if people think they are, the issues involved are greater than any given region and people can take them uh, wherever they go. In fact, ironically, the United States is a perfect example of this. You know, obviously not everyone, you know, everyone has read up on this, but this country was originally established largely as a place to avoid religious persecution. Hence, we had secular government established, the separation of church and state. You know, even though dummies like Lauren Boebert will claim that's not true, but as someone who can quickly do a Google search, I can remind you that, hey, actually, Thomas Jefferson led the fight in Virginia for disestablishment of the Anglican Church. You know, so he very much was in favor of separation of uh, church and state. As the Virginia Museum of History and Culture notes, to Jefferson, nature's God, who is undeniably visible in the workings of the universe, gives man the freedom to choose his religious beliefs. This is the divinity whom deists of the time accepted, a God who created the world and is the final judge of man, but who does not intervene in the affairs of man. So yeah, that was basically the idea at the time. Thomas Jefferson would not have wanted to break up the United States uh, in order to establish a theocracy in some parts you know, because he didn't want theocratic government at all over here. Still, fast forward to today, and these right-wing these right-wing extremists, all who claim to know the U.S. Constitution and the founding fathers so well, tend to leave out all of those good parts. In fact, they seem more interested in applauding the bad parts of the founders. You know, the slaveholding parts, which had obviously divided the country, including along racial lines, because slavery, as practiced in the United States, was overwhelmingly a racist institution. And also in Jefferson's case, these slave raping parts, it seems they would want to bring back. Um, because here's a fun fact. Thomas Jefferson was 44 years old, while Sally Hemings was only 14. That was the uh, slave that he had raped. And uh, his sexual relationship started with her in 1787. In today's world, it would be considered statutory rape. Interestingly, Jefferson kept all these children, all of these children by Sally Hemings, his own children as slaves. And uh, he only freed them after his death. So, uh, yeah, you can find out about how basically Thomas Jefferson was a sinister dude. 
Um, he, he was evil. I mean, there it is. I'm just going to say it. Uh, unless you think, you know, raping underage slaves is a good thing. Um, I tend to frown upon that myself. But at the same time, oddly enough, he had some relatively progressive ideas about government. So, I mean, that's, that's the screwed up way that history functions, you know, talk about mixed, uh, a mixed legacy of just uh, basic evil and some relative good thrown in the mix. So I guess the Republicans would say I'm going, you know, I'm engaging in cancel culture by pointing all this out and saying, hey, that's kind of gross and wrong, Tom. What what, what the fuck were you thinking? You know, that's, uh, you know, cancel culture, I guess, against one of the founding fathers. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think I'm alone in saying that was a horrible part of his uh, legacy in many ways. But again, I have absolutely zero doubt in my mind that the far-right extremist white nationalist types would have no problem with bringing this, this sort of stuff back as normalized and with having things like witch trials, new victims of concentration camps. And on that on that note, remember that Michelle Malkin, the far-right figure who was normalized on Fox News for a number of years, not only went on to speak at white nationalist events and write for such publications, but actually wrote a full-length book defending the Japanese internment camps in America during the 1940s. Because Michelle Malkin is horrible in practically every which way, I suppose one might say she was a proto-Candace Owens, only now more openly white nationalist to some degree. And again, Malkin was normalized by people like Sean Hannity and Fox News over the years. Although they don't really bring her on as a guest anymore because I guess she went a little bit too far um, by speaking at white nationalist conventions. I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised they're stopping, you know, at that point. Um, you know, unlike the white nationalists, most Americans tend to dislike the idea of splitting America up, but obviously they're working on crafting that narrative because again, they want a theocratic um, racist state the idea of splitting the U.S. is generally not actively pursued or widely supported. Pretty much by definition, that view will threaten the nation's well-being. And certainly, you know, plenty of citizens are aware of that. The United States has a long history of overcoming internal differences and working toward a common national identity. In fact, as Trump himself noted while being a silly head during one of his speeches, the U.S. itself spells us. Wow, what a profound observation. But you know what? I'll give him that one. There's something profound about that, if you think about it. <laughs> it's just definitely not an original concept that he invented. So while there may be political and cultural divisions, the idea of secession or splitting the country is generally seen as impractical and contrary to the principles of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, still, a recent Washington Post headline said, in America, talk turns to something not spoken of for 150 years, civil war. However, again, 
that is the far right talking and promoting that idea more than any other uh, general political camp. And uh, in reality, the challenges and complexities of dividing a country as large and interconnected as the United States would likely be enormous. And such a process would likely have severe consequences for the people, economy, and institutions involved. Meanwhile, as countries globalize, their citizens benefit more from it than they draw disadvantages. So that's why some of these far-right interests are sort of paradoxically speaking against globalization because they do not want citizens to benefit from it. They only want globalization that will benefit corporations. So it, it is a bit of a paradoxical message that they have because powerful states are expansionist and corporations are expansionist, religions are expansionist, um, but at the same time, they do not want any of the possible tangible benefits from any of those things to be a thing that is widely available to the world, you know, the world population. They only want uh, as the primary benef benef benefactors, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but the, pri the people who benefit, they want, they want it to be the uh, rich and well-connected. And what a shame that some people don't understand that, you know, because really all this uh, xenophobia and bashing of immigrants is feeding into the uh, divide and conquer scheme that they've had for quite a while. Now, far-right extremists who used to be more underground have climbed up out of the sewers and are no longer ashamed to show their breathtaking stupidity. The irre irrelevant has become relevant. And a lot of this has to do with Fox News and Fox News type media. But there's also a freak named Floyd Brown, who is less of a household name than Rupert Murdoch. But he's been very influential nonetheless. And uh, I want to mention him here uh, somewhat quickly. 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 Jesus. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Floyd Brown owns the Western Journal. So try to keep the name Floyd Brown in your mind a bit if you're trying at all to learn about far-right loons. The Intercept reported that thanks to views sourced largely to referrals from Facebook, Brown's website now outrank web traffic going to news outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, CBS News, and NPR, according to data compiled by Alexa. You know, that's the... Uh, Floyd Brown Western Journal, as it's called. Floyd Brown is also noteworthy for founding Citizens United in 1988 and for his introduction of the infamous and in many ways racist Willie Horton TV ad during the 1988 presidential election campaign. So he's been influential for quite a while. And of course, there's the, uh, you know, the uh, Supreme Court case Citizens United that really altered the way that elections are able to be held in this country, that gave more power to wealthy donors and whatnot, because it was decided that basically money from corporations to candidates is a form of free speech. That's basically how they 
sold that, which is kind of zany because it's equivalent to saying that bribery is free speech. So Brown and Citizens United worked on behalf of the nomination of Clarence Thomas to the U.S. Supreme Court. So there's another connection. I almost thought I was done talking with uh, about Clarence Thomas for a while, but it turns out he's relevant to this episode. Remember also that Citizens United versus FEC, again, was the case that struck down as unconstitutional a federal law prohibiting corporations and unions from making expenditures in connection with federal elections. Brown has other scummy compadres too, of course. Citizens United's uh, current president, David Bossie, was a deputy, deputy campaign manager for Donald Trump. So he's obviously well-connected with Citizens United, Trump is, and Bossy is responsible for introducing Trump to Steve Bannon. You know, those two have been in love ever since. You know, Steve Bannon's the same guy who promised to build a border wall, but instead got convicted for using that money for his own purposes. Bannon was arrested on a super yacht owned by a Chinese billionaire, of course, uh, and let's remember that Clarence Thomas himself is in trouble, at least in the court of public opinion, over getting gifts like trips on super yachts and, and whatnot. So it seems like a lot of the stuff going on in this country somehow involves super yachts. And Bannon got what, for him, is basically a slap on the wrist um, for his fraudulent activity, for a uh, ripping off the people who are funding, you know, his supposed border wall. Anyway, back to Floyd Brown. Brown was also associated with the Young America's Foundation, which had a longtime featured speaker, Michelle Malkin. See, remember her? I, I mentioned her earlier. Well, she voiced support for Nazi propagandist Nick Fuentes, and Fuentes, of course, had that lovely little Thanksgiving feast with Donald Trump. So see how this all weirdly ties together? It's all very super villainy sounding. And the messed up thing is this is all apparently true. I myself wish I could pinch my arm and wake up from this weird nightmare, but no, it's all too real. In a few years, I would fully expect someone like Nick Fuentes to be an analyst for Fox News, or at least an occasional guest host on the network. Granted, not everything has been 100% awful, but with the trajectory we're on, you know, maybe these people will get their wish and there will be, you know, mass division in the country uh, in terms of actual secession. And uh, not everything has been 100% awful, but, you know, that seems to be where we're headed. And uh, ex expect things to get more unhinged in the future. I'm not sure if they can even be stopped at this point, because even if Trump loses in 2024, the network of oligarchs and neo-fascists is not going away. So keep that in mind. This has been building up for years and years, and, you know, there's no sign that it's going to completely go away. So on that happy thought, <laughs> Have one, have a wonderful day. <laughs> Yikes.